fell asleep in church. History and theme. Hello, Second Pot listeners. This is Serena Wolf, and I am here in the studio at Trinity United Methodist Church in Grove City with Caleb Spiker. And we're going to talk some theology and drink some energy drinks today. So let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So, Serene, I saw you brought in today this new energy drink for us to try. Mm-hmm. Grape. Yeah. Um, so you had requested rain. Orange Dreamsicle. Uh, and Orange Dreamsicle, like, throws me back to my youth, right? My, my childhood days, thinking about drinking orange soda on the mail route with my grandpa. Uh, well, the gas station I went to didn't have rain in Orange Dreamsicle. They had rain in a bunch of gross mm. flavors. Uh, so I thought, well, we'll stick with the theme of, like, things I drank when I was little. And I went with uh, a grape-flavored NOS. What I'm interested about this one is this is the first one that's had actual sugar in it. Oh, does so it have actual sugar? It does. <gasps> Whoa, oh yeah. my gosh. Okay, it, it not only has actual sugar, it has enough sugar that I can't drink any more sugar the rest of the day. Yeah. I should have looked at the label. Um, <laughs> what caught my attention, though, was... <laughs> This is going to be bad. What caught my attention was the enhanced mental focus. Mm. It says high performance energy plus enhanced mental focus. And anyone who knows me in real life knows that I can use all the enhanced mental focus available. Um, Daggone it. I hate that it has that much sugar, though. It also has a ton of vitamin B. I don't take my vitamin B supplements on Mondays or t- yeah Mondays anymore <laughs> when we record because um, I don't need them. All right. All right. Here goes nothing. Oh. Do you like grape soda? It smells like grape soda. Do you like grape soda? I can bear grape soda. Okay. When it's the option presented. Okay. Bottoms up. Oh. This is like drinking a lollipop. Oh, this is really, really sweet. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so it's clear that there's no natural grape flavoring in this. (laughs) I mean, it it tastes like grape soda, right? Like, no, there's something else there because it's making my eyes water. <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay, um, yeah, this stuff is. Uh, <laughs> That's an interesting flavored burp. Mm. This is this is different. Yeah, right. I mean it's it's all right. I'm I I I'm I'm thinking. Uh, it is it is by far the one that's tasted most like just a regular 
pop. That is true. Um, oh my gosh, my lips are sticky. <laughs> this stuff is ridiculous. Yeah, I'm uh I so it doesn't have the aftertaste of last week's. So right. the front end taste is not as good, the back end taste is better. Yeah. Yeah. Um still lower caffeine than uh Fang. This one, this puppy only has 160 milligrams of caffeine. Child's play. So here's here's what I don't understand. Why why energy drink manufacturers would you put 52 grams of added sugar in this 16 ounce can of carbonated fake grape drink because the 13 year olds that pick those up on their way to school don't care my 13 year olds when they were 13 well maya was 13 lucy's not 13 yet they don't have energy drinks. Maya didn't have an energy drink until her sophomore year of high school. And she decided she wasn't going to have another one for a really long time. Because my daughter, hyped up on caffeine, is a crazy truth-telling <laughs> blob <laughs> of emotional nonsense. <laughs> yeah. It's how I got her to tell me that she was dating this boy. <laughs> I took her out to Starbucks. I got her a cold brew. I'm like, so tell me, this boy you've you've been talking about that you went to lunch with, like, are you guys going to date? You, uh, you're going miniature golfing. Is this a date? Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> hmm. There we That's go. Funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, this is uh, this is the sort of thing you uh, pick up when you're playing on playing PlayStation all night with your buddies, right? Not not for 160 milligrams of caffeine. I mean, maybe the 52 grams of sugar. What am I supposed to eat the rest of the day? Like, I'm going to have salad the rest of the day. I don't know that my body can do this. I'm 44 years old, Caleb. I mean, this is designed to be eaten with Doritos. <laughs> Clearly. Like, one of these, like, so here's the thing. I think I'm going to give it like a five and a half. But if I had a bag of Doritos and a bag of Skittles to have it with, it'd probably oh become an eight. Because you know, Lord. like I think it would pair really well with Doritos and Skittles. Okay. Um. So, so I deleted maybe some Totino's pizza rolls. Oh my gosh! Wow, bagel bites. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh. So, we did a podcast one week. And uh, I record the podcast on my computer, and I needed to com- clean my computer because after podcasting and uh, you know all the audio work and video stuff that I do for the church, uh, my computer was like, "Clean me!" So I did, and I used a program to clean it, and I accidentally kept wave files uh, checked. So I lost our recordings. Uh, including the one that I didn't actually get to post yet. And in that, the reason I'm saying this is in that, we reviewed Bang. Mm. Uh, I had, what, Unicorn Sparkle? Like, I wish I were kidding about that, but I'm not. And you had... I have no idea. uh, Yeah, I don't know. It was watermelon flavored. 
Excuse me. Embarrassing. Um, okay, so all that to say, uh, the flavor of this is close to bang. Mm. That's not necessarily great, especially since I've started drinking diet soda, which is not the same type of sweet as regular soda. Nope. Um, so the flavor, I'm going to give a six. It's not something I'd usually drink, but I like it better than the one we did last week. The one we did. Oh. <laughs> oh. Um, but man, for the sugar, I'm going to, I'm going to bump it down a notch or two. Like enhanced mental focus. My mental focus doesn't matter if I am in a diabetic coma. <laughs> <laughs> And at 44 years of age, I should not be drinking anything that has 52 grams of added sugar. So I'm going to give this one, I'm going to give it a three and a half. Mm. Tastes pretty good. Makes my lips sticky. Clearly makes me burp. That's already started. And um, yeah. I'm not sure I can finish the can. Yeah. What are you going to do? Pray that the uh, sugar doesn't send me into a diabetic coma. Hmm. All right. Put a second pot on. We're going to learn what's going on. So, uh, clear throughout Lent, um, you know, we talked about the love of God and the call to love one another and that sort of thing. And one of our uh, astute saints here at Trinity said, well, what do you do with Luke fourteen twenty six? And for those of you who don't have your Bible open in front of you, Luke fourteen twenty six says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters... And even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Going on, whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't sit down first and compute the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish the tower, all those who see it will begin to make fun of him. They'll say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So the question is, why do we keep talking about how much Jesus loves us and calls us to love one another? If here he says you need to hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister. I have an answer. No place. Jesus has contradicted himself. I'm going to vote this passage of scripture out and say that this was not actually said by Jesus. Okay, try that again, Adam. <laughs> I am kidding, of course. That was that was a slam on multiple. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, so I mean, we're, we're I mean, this this gets us to the question of what is a faithful way of reading scripture? Like, what does it entail to read scripture faithfully? Um, and, you know, for a passage like this, you know, it's helpful to know that hyperbole is a method that is often used in the rabbinical tradition right that jesus is not saying that you must 
hate your mother and your father or your sister and your brother and all these around you if you want to follow me but more so that like it's it's a question of allegiance it is a um it is a a It is talking about like what it looks like to be committed to Jesus and committed to the kingdom, so much so that like it can put us in conflict with family. You know, yes. it it will rewrite you know the um, the kin relationships we have, and that's something we need to be prepared for. I mean, yeah, it's it's hyperbolic to say yes, you need to hate them, um, because I mean, you look at the the rest of the um, the rest of the canon there, and even the rest of here in chapter fourteen. You know, this is this is a a, a section where Jesus is teaching and talking about counting the cost of discipleship. So, recognizing it can strain relationships with family members who you know he's talking to a primarily jewish audience right who won't be happy about you being expelled from the synagogue <laughs> yep right um you know it's it's reminding the audience like this very well could cost you your life it'll cost you your relationships cost you your life like count the costs like know what you're getting into before you jump in with both feet um it's funny, the way we read scripture, though, sometimes, um, because I, I, I know the gentleman that asked this. This is a very intelligent man. Mm. I'm sure he did not take Jesus saying, you must hate your mother and father, or brother or sister, literally. Just like he doesn't think literally we have to go fashion a cross and pick up and carry it. Right. Or cut off our hand if it causes us to sin exactly. or pluck out our eye. Pluck out or, our eye. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but it's funny how some of the text will jump out at us in some passages and not others. Like it is shocking to hear Jesus say, you've got you've to hate your family. Mm. Like, oh, what? What? Yeah. Less shocking for Jesus to say, lop off your hand, pluck out your eye, I suppose. But, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it gets into this bigger question of, like, what does it look like to read Scripture faithfully? Um, because, you know, it it can be, um, you know, it can be difficult to read this 2,000-year-old document written in a language other than English, in a culture other than... Um, late uh republic capitalism or you know whatever you want to call what uh, what marks the beginning of the 21st century here um i mean this is these are are this is a, a scripture and like the entirety of scripture right like none of it was written in north america right none of it was written in europe Right. Right. Like it is all written <laughs> in, you know, that that swath of land that's, you know, a little bit of Africa and the Middle East into um, 
you know, what they used to call Asia Minor. Right. You know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, in order to, I mean, this, this gets back to, you know, like the worst Bible study you can possibly go to is one where people sit around in a circle, they read a passage, and then say, what does this text say to me? Mm. Not that that's a bad question, but that's a question that can't be the first one. Right. Like, what's more important is, what does this text say? And then you can get into the answer of, what does this text say to me? Like, you can't put the cart before the horse there. And in order to get to, what does this text say, sometimes it takes a little bit more than just, what did the interpreters who took this passage from Greek to English, what did they give us just reading the text on its face? Um, because there are multiple literary forms at work in Scripture. Um, different authors have different goals in what they're trying to write. And... And we can get into a lot of trouble if we just make assumptions about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, from early adulthood forward, um, when people said, you know, well, the Bible's, you know, it just, it just means what it says on the page. I always found that difficult to swallow because, um, the Bible says so many things on the page, and uh, it can't all have been meant literally, or a bunch of Christians would be <coughs> handless, eyeless people walking around with large wooden beams on their backs, right? Like, that's that. I think that's an adventure in missing the point. And one of the things that I uh, I appreciate about your home church is how much you guys love apps. Oh, man. Right? Because... Central like being loves a, us some maps. Being able to locate what's going on oftentimes gives, gives clarity into what's being talked about. Right. So, you know, there, there are passages oh. where, where Jesus is making specific allusions to a local feature mm -hmm. where Paul is making specific allusions to a local feature right and without some context of hey there are mountains to the east there's a river to the west you know this is this is what is shaping kind of the daily life of the people there it can be really easy to read in um, you know kind of just assumptions that the people who were original hearers wouldn't have made um, yep. and that you know Jesus isn't trying to say right right I mean even even the question of you know how do we interpret the Old Testament right like I mean and here's you know my basic conviction around Old Testament interpretation is I want to first 
understand the Old Testament passages in my best guess of how Jesus understood them. Right, so when we look at first century rabbinical literature around the interpretation of the Pentateuch, of the Torah, of you know the prophets and, and what have you, like this is our best guess at how Jesus would have been trained in interpreting these passages. But here's the thing. You're using the language guess. This isn't all a guess, right? Like, we have Jewish resources that show us how passages were being interpreted. Interpreted. Thank you. Um, like, all of this is out there, right? Like, mm-hmm. this isn't even really... I mean, it's a guess as far as you... We can never fully know what other people are thinking, right? But yeah, I mean, it, it's possible that Jesus looked at what all of his contemporaries were doing in the generation before him and said, yeah, they got none of this right. It's possible. Mm-hmm. Well, But I don't think it is fair or right to make the assumption that that is what is right, that, right? So, mm-hmm. like, it is more likely that Jesus, as a person, was trained in the Hebrew Scriptures— had all of this sort of interpretive framework that we find in the Talmud. And being divine cleaned parts up. And we get a lot of that in, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, the Final Discourse. You know, we see Jesus, you know, entering into some of these conversations that were going on around him. And I think that is a much different, like, like starting from the place of Jesus and his contemporaries were interpreting the Old Testament in this way. And Jesus enters into some of those conversations. And Jesus illuminates parts of the Old Testament is a lot different than saying Jesus read the Old Testament like a 19th century North American person. Oh, Lord have mercy, yeah. Well, not only that, but Jesus also gives us a foundation for how we as Christians look at the Old Testament. So yesterday in the sermon, this podcast isn't going to be posted today. Today is Monday. Yesterday was Sunday. But you're going to hear this a little later in the week. Uh, But in your sermon this week, Caleb, you read a passage from John where Jesus goes back and explains what has happened using the Old Testament. So for Christians, the Old Testament in its entirety will point us to the very nature of God and the reality of the Messiah. Uh, that That is part of the tradition of the Christian church. And, yeah, so, I mean, we we get into this question of, like, you know, I mean, how, like, the the sort of popular Western notion, oh, the God of the Old Testament is mean, and yada, 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 but, you know, Jesus brings grace, and it's like, no, no, like, Jesus, like, part of how we interpret 
what is i mean and i i don't even like using this word but i can't think of a better one right now like what is historical in the community building narrative of the old testament is through the lens of what jives with the character of jesus right because if we know jesus we know the father so given the character of jesus did god command the israelites to destroy all the people men women and children living in canaan when they crossed the jordan i doubt it like i doubt that's historical because the character of jesus we don't see that like i think what what how we are better off interpreting that entire narrative is as as a theological and a uh, anthropological sort of question of how do we deal with our neighbors when i mean and this is you know this is part of you know jesus being jewish right like <laughs> there were no like this is it has long been the tradition for you know jewish folks that the joshua judges narrative is about showing that just going in and killing your opponents doesn't work mm -hmm. it doesn't bring purity not the way that it's intended it's it, the whole story is not laid out there as a here's how we historically came in and took the promised land and made it pure right, right? because right. like they didn't like that's the point like this this uh the way that story is told is to teach like you can't just kill your problems right because they are bigger than flesh and blood there is a spiritual orientation to the world around us that invites us to worship things that aren't worthy of worship mm -hmm. so i mean it's um, you know, when we, like part of our, you know, here's a big fancy word, hermeneutic, you know, this, uh, the, the shape of how we do interpretation, the shape of how we make sense of, um, what the Bible says when we're reading the old Testament comes back to what is being said about God in the Old Testament, does it jive with the character of Jesus? Mm -hmm. And when I say the character of Jesus, I don't mean a character named Jesus. I mean his character, right. the person Jesus' character. And if the answer is no, then chances are we are not reading something that's supposed to be understood historically. But again, it's theological. Like even even like the question of Abraham and Isaac, right? Like, did God tell Abraham to go kill his son and then change his mind? 
I mean, I guess based on Luke 14, 26, maybe he did, right? But, or, or is this theologically a, a way that the people understood that their God is different than Moloch, that their God is different than the gods around them that demanded child sacrifice. Guess what? These other gods, they all demand child sacrifice, not Not our God. So here's a fun story. When I was an undergrad at Ohio University, I um, took primarily social work, psychology, and child and family studies courses. And in one of my social work courses, um, the professor was talking about child abuse. And she brought up a link between faith and child abuse and pointed to the story of Abraham and Isaac as evidence that some religions make child abuse permissible. And I remember being appalled. I'm like, wait, what? And I raised my hand. I'm like, that's not what that means. That's not the point of the story. And she's like, well, that's what it says. And I just, I'm like, why why are you so anti-intellectual about this? Like, I didn't say this to my professor. I said, no, the point of the story is that the God of the Jewish people is not a God that demands child sacrifice. I'm like, reading it any other way is really disrespectful to both Jewish people and Christians and Muslims. <laughs> um, and this is where I struggle with this whole thing. And we are, we want intellectual rigor when it comes to science. Um, but we at some point have s- never demanded intellectual, not never, at some point we stopped demanding intellectual rigor in religion. Like, why is it okay for a pastor to stand up before a congregation and say, we don't, we interpret the Bible based on what the Bible says. We don't, we don't adhere to a tradition. I mean, like being raised Baptist, these are things that I heard. Um, why do we have people who think that there absolutely must be a literal six-day creation? Otherwise, the entire faith collapses, right? Like, I struggle with this. I don't know where we went wrong accepting such poor understanding of Scripture. This is clearly not how the church fathers and mothers understood scripture. Like, why are we divorced from that? I mean, this is going to sound cynical. (laughs) But my guess is that at some point, one of our... uh, Someone in our industry who came before us discovered that there was money to be made in going that direction. And instead of promoting a, you know, a, a rigorous reading of Scripture, it was easier to print bumper stickers that says, the Bible says it, I believe it, it's settled, right? Oh, like, yeah. And, I mean, frankly, it's easier, right? Like, it's a whole lot, it takes a lot less effort to preach 
if you are not focused and intentional about being faithful to to the text. Yeah. And by faithful, I mean like trying to understand who it was written by, who it was written to, when it was written, where it was written, how all of these things factor into how it would have been originally understood. And because, you know, like this, yeah, the, the, how the, how the, how a letter written in the first century was understood by the people who received it in the first century. And that is, that's where the rubber meets the road. Right. It's not, how do I feel about it reading it in 2021? You know, I mean, this is not to say that the Holy Spirit cannot work through the devotional by through the devotional reading of the text oh, to say, you know, oh, here is something that, 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 that can get me through today. You know, here is, mm-hmm. here's something that, that can, you know, encourage me or convict me or what have you. Like, like that definitely happens. It happens to all of us. Thank of God course. that it happens. Yes. Um, but when we are talking about create, you know, establishing theology, when we're talking about the, um, the work of preaching and teaching, you have to be able to get back to this question of who was it written to? What did it mean to them before we can get to what does this mean for us? Well, even the fact that, um, you know, a letter is frequently part of a two-way conversation, right? Like even the fact that there had been exchange between, you know, primarily the Apostle Paul um, and these communities, like we forget that this takes place in a bigger context. Mm-hmm. Down, down to the point where the person who delivers and reads the letter to the church matters. Like this is, you know, there's a huge argument um, against women in church leadership based on the writings of St. Paul. Um, having done some reading on that, because I can't throw out, like the man wrote so many of our epistles, I can't throw this out. And say, well, Paul is just a misogynist and everything he wrote was crap because he was a misogynist. Like, if you dig deeper, like, the women were central. Just, yeah. Yeah, he, it, he wrote it, a lot it, of these letters to women who were leading local churches, right? Right. Well, and the women would have <laughs> delivered the letters. I mean, yeah. like, it, this doesn't, the fact that he, he named Prisha or Priscilla before her husband, like, it, these minute Junia, little things, right? Yeah. Well, you know, Junia. Anyway, we can get into that another day. <laughs> I'd love to to do one setting the record straight. Anyway, um, yeah, and you know, the other thing, and I worry about this with with our students here at Trinity. And again, by students, I mean seventh through twelfth graders. If they don't know how scripture is rightly interpreted, interpreted. Boy, I'm having trouble with that word. I'm going to blame it on the sugar. Interpreted. I interpreted. Like Thank Sounds you. Sounds like a, like a W-ism. It, well, there you go. Um, if they don't know how scripture is rightly interpreted, if they 
don't understand different forms of literature and scripture, if they don't appreciate and understand the complexity of the ancient mind and the ancient worldview, when they get outside of our church and go off to college and into the community, people are going to eat their lunch, man. They're going to show them how silly it is to believe in a book that contradicts itself, that contains, you know, such terrible stories. Um, you know, just like my professor in the social work class did. Like, if I didn't understand how to interpret that, that story, she might have sh shaken my faith. Mm. Like, this anti-intellectual thing in the church is, well, okay, so specifically in Protestant churches with evangelical bents, typically. It's going to kill the church. Like, it's been killing us. God gave us brains to think with, people. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're I not rarely wrong. am wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, and this is, you know, like, I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again, right? Like, I am wrong about at least 30% of what I say. I, I just don't know what 30% it is. Right. Right? Like, there, there is... Um, you know, this is this is one of the difficulties of being two thousand years and ten thousand miles removed from the text. More than two thousand years for the Old Testament. Yeah, four thousand years in some places. Right, yeah. like this is, yeah. You know, I mean, there. Again, you know, we we try and talk about this every time we can, right? That like there are just cultural things going on in the world the Bible is written that are just very, 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 very different from here. Right. Um, There's nothing in the world like the ancient cultures anymore. No, no, like th it, there's... I mean, there are, there are cultures that are closer. Of course. Um, but this is not the same world it was 4,000 years yeah. ago. Or 6,000 years ago, or, yeah. There was no Cardi B in the first century, right? <laughs> and no YouTube to make it so everyone could watch her. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it is, like, it is a, um, it takes a lot of effort to be as faithful as you can be. And at the end of the day, even with that, there is still 30% of stuff that we're wrong about and we don't know what it is. Yeah. I mean, okay, so... Um, Which is why, you know, we need to have some grace yeah. around, um, you know, having disagreements on things. Right. Um, you know, like... <clears throat> so... Every hill that I'm willing to die on was established, you know, by the beginning of the 5th century. Yep. Right? Like, I am fine with Christians holding any position that is not specifically laid out in the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon. Right. Mm -hmm. This is the framework for what it is to be a Christian. 
Right. Um, but you have to know what the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon say before you can, ministry. you know, like that we, because we have churches that are anti-creedal as well. Here's the reality. Every church has a creed. The question is, do you have a creed that the church has claimed <laughs> since, you know, yeah. the, f- uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, uh, yeah, so it's, it is. understanding the bible like it is and this is like this is part of what makes it so much fun right is that the bible is a living document Mm -hmm. that if we study every day of our lives we will learn something new every day yep um that as we learn more about the way the ancient world works it will sharpen and refine you know our reading. Um, God help us if we think that we've arrived and have no more to learn. Well, and, and I think that's that's the beauty of it, right? Is it's like it's like God can work through an eight-year-old reading through the Bible the first mm-hmm. time. The Holy Spirit can speak in just as powerfully for an 80 year old reading through it for the 72nd time you know with a phd in old testament language god can still work and teach new things on a daily basis yeah i mean this is this is the the beauty of the text and why yeah i mean it's there's a there's a reason why you know I chose a job that, like, for whatever reason, people pay me to continue to read and try and understand what it says. Isn't that crazy? Right, like it's just crazy. But but there are there are many people who have dedicated their life to understanding this set of books, and the reason you can do that is because it is a never-ending wealth of discovery and. Um, clarity and it yeah when I think too you know you can't you you always bring your worldview to a text that you're reading you can't help it Mm -hmm. but I think like no other book the longer you study scripture the more it impacts how you see the world Mm -hmm. like I there are tons of books that I love that I've read multiple times but they don't shape my worldview the same way that scripture does. Um, yeah. Yep. So I think I want to give our listeners a heads up that um, our youth here at Trinity are going to be I haven't decided yet. We're either going to go through the Apostles' Creed just because it's, you know, earlier and easier to digest and flows off the tongue more easily than the the Nicene Creed or the Lord's Prayer through the spring. But then as we enter into summer, we're going to get into studying uh, faith and science and where Mm. the two can converge, where they don't converge. But more importantly, 
why these things exist. Uh, so hopefully we'll come back to this interpretation of scripture and talk about, you know, the scientific mind and worldview and how you can be both a scientist and a Christian, which has been happening for, you know. Forever. Yes, forever. So, uh, in Europe, it is a relatively new thing to call science science. Hmm. Like, up until about 150 years ago, it had a different name. What was that name? Was it philosophy? Natural theology. Natural theology. Sorry. I'm, like, a little sketchy on my... Yeah, I mean, and this is, you know, this is this is one of the strange things of the 20th century, right, is that we separated science as, you know, instead of an endeavor that worked alongside of theology to answer the how questions, because, I mean, the world has how questions and it has why questions. And historically, theology and science worked alongside each other. Science answered the how, theology answered the why, and, you know, you, the greatest minds in the world studied both. Right. Right? Like, John Wesley, founder of Methodism, his best-selling book, Natural Physica, it's a health textbook. Right. It's not theology. It's yep. it's it's not ecclesiology. It's it's not, you know, biblical interpretation. John Wesley's best-selling book is a health textbook. Yep. Jonathan Edwards did a whole heck of a lot more writing on um, anatomy mm-hmm. than he did on theology. Sir Isaac Newton did a whole lot more writing on theology than he did on physics. <laughs> yeah. Because these two things, like, for the vast majority of human history, like, studying them together was the norm. Right. Well, and it's this is not just in Christianity either, right? Like, mm-hmm. you think, like, I think of Islam. Okay, so let's be up front. Like, clearly, I don't agree with the foundational... Uh, theology of Islam. I'm not saying it's completely wrong. Like, they say a lot of things about God that's true. Um, But here's what I do know about Islam, that Muslim thinkers also developed all sorts of other branches of knowledge, right? Like some beautiful... Like math? Like math. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Zero? Thank you. Thank you, Arabs. Um, I I mean, yeah, the religion for so long was not divorced from intellectual virtue and um this is this is where i get excited about my daughter's choice of college right like um so she's looking at saint john's which is a liberal liberal arts school in annapolis maryland and they have a great books uh curriculum those great books include the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, the Confessions, right? Augustine, 
it includes some writings that I've read in my doctoral program, like along with the Odyssey and, you know, mathematics as they as it was originally developed. And she's going to have such a broader perspective of how the world works um, than your standard college educated person. That makes me sad. It also makes me sad that Christian schools don't talk about evolution a lot. (laughs) How are you going to raise a Christian kid if you're sending them off to a place where they're going to be taught that evolution and faith are in conflict with each other and evolution wins? You're doing them a disservice. Yeah. Yeah, I don't don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. This is why I'm not for Christians isolating themselves from the rest of the world. I'd rather my child confront these things in public school while she's still at home and witnessing people living out their faith than her encountering this for the first time in college around a bunch of people who do good things and seem to be good people but are the devo- are devoid of faith. Yeah, I mean, you know, like this is this is Dreyer's whole thing and people of his ilk, right? Like we just need to get out of the culture because the culture is corrupt beyond repair. And um, you know, like I, 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 you know, our kids are in public school too, and you know, like there is there is some level of concern in our household, right? That there is a. Um, that there is a worldview that is being coercively instructed. Sure. Um, and that elements of it may not be compatible with um, a Christian view of the world. I think those concerns are valid. I, yeah. But I think the I, I'm I am not convinced. Like Dreyer and his ilk, that the proper response to that is, you know, sectarianism. Yeah. Um, For those of you listening who are wondering who this Dreyer is and what we're talking about, there's a book called The Benedict Option. Uh, it is a painful reading for me, but I'm trying to force myself through it slowly uh, because in my doctoral work, I um, am looking at the role of Saint Benedict and seeing. Yeah, yeah, I can get into that later. But uh, yeah, that's basically he is like, we need like Benedict to withdraw from society. Yeah, and I mean, I I think, and even there, like I think that, um, I think for the health of our souls, getting away for a period is a must. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, it is. Like the typical American consumption of media is a recipe for, you know, the death of your soul. Yep. Like watching five hours of television, two hours of it being news television, like spending an additional three hours on, you know, online, two hours of them on social media. Like eight hours in front of a screen 
taking in information that has been curated to piss you off and make you angry, like, yeah, that is, that is destructive. Absolutely. Um, getting away from that, finding ways to get away from that is an absolute must. Yep. Um, Otherwise, you are going to become paranoid and fearful and anxious and depressed and um, unable to distinguish reality from this construct that people are have created yeah because i mean i think that's that's the thing about media that i think we all kind of understand implicitly but rarely say out loud and because we rarely say it out loud it kind of goes on without being critically evaluated is that all media in north america is a for-profit venture like, the point of cable news is to mm-hmm. sell advertising. Yes. The point of Facebook is to sell advertising. The point of Instagram, the point of TikTok, well, the point of TikTok is to sell your data to the Chinese Communist Party, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, <laughs> it is, like, we have these things in front of us to sell us a product. And the evil geniuses who write the algorithms, who produce this stuff, know that the easiest way to keep us hooked and to keep us coming back for more is to tick us off, yep. is to do something that's, that's going to, you know, push just the right button, you know, make our blood pressure spike, get that adrenal response and we'll come back for more, and we'll come back for more. Anger is addictive. Yep. And it, it's frightening, the amount of anger. I don't, yeah, I try not to overreact. I don't, I don't, I'm sure there have been other times in our human history where there have been, where there's been as much anger as some of us perceive today. But man, like the divisiveness and the anger. You know, why is road rage a thing? Can somebody tell me why people get so upset about driving? Like they're, they, we're all, we've all got places to go. Just chill. We'll all get there. Uh, Politic. It, yeah. This is, it's hard. Well, I, I think what makes it unique in human history is that we are angry for pettier reasons than ever before, <laughs> right? Like, right. Um, you know, in, in, in the words of my friend Dan, everything is awesome. Why aren't we happy? Well, okay. Or, yeah, or we're, ran- we're angry for the wrong reasons. So I read this weekend a news article um, about how out in, S- I think it was San Francisco, out on the West Coast, um, school teachers are volunteering their time to go into these places where uh, unaccompanied minors, migrant children, have come into the states and are being housed to teach them, which I think is praiseworthy. But this news company found parents who were ticked off because, daggone it, my kids can't have in-school instruction. Why are these kids who aren't supposed to be here? And I'm like, do you not understand that you're getting angry about the wrong thing? Like, how much do you love your child? 
what would it take for you to feel like you needed to send your child into another country without you? Like, let's be angry about what's causing this to happen. Let's be angry about the fact that these kids are being housed in really not good place. Like, this is just not a good situation. Don't, don't be angry that a teacher who loves children and who understands the value of education wants to go spend a few hours a week with these kids who need people who love them. I'm like, you're angry about the wrong thing. Well, I mean, I think you can legitimately be angry about both, right? Like, you can legitimately be upset that the choices our leaders have made have led to, you know, a... I was I was reading an article by a Stanford education researcher who said that basically what we've seen across the United States is a year-long summer vacation. Yeah. Like the sort of – because like what typically happens for an American student is they get better, 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 better through the school year. Mm-hmm. And then – they lose a portion of it over the summer. Yep. But, you know, they're able to get it like like that. Those first few weeks of school is onboarding, getting people back to where they were, and then you can progress again. So we have students who've been passed on to the next grade while falling back a grade level. So we have fifth graders who are basically third graders now who are going to go into sixth grade next year and get their butts kicked. Yep. Because, you know, most of our school districts are passing kids, you know, whether they're showing up and doing their work or not. Um, well. And, I mean, what choice do you have? Right. <laughs> so, so here's the reality of the situation, right? Like, the majority of our country is not urban, Right. Like, we have tons of kids. Population is, though. Well, the population. That's that's the difficulty. Yes. But even within urban settings, not every kid has Internet access readily available. You have parents who have to work, be it in home or outside the home. The reason we have teachers is because my husband and I are not home to teach our children. Our children need to learn from someone, and there are better people equipped than me to teach my children. Well, it's it's the system that that we've grown accustomed to. right. So we weren't prepared for at-home learning. Like, this has been, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You, you can be upset about both the fact that our children haven't been in school and the fact, no, but, but it's the comparison, right? Like, I'm not happy with how the pandemic has played out. I'm not happy with the fact that it's taken a year for my kids to get back in school. But I'm also a nervous wreck about them being back. This is the first day of Southwest City Schools being all in. Hallelujah. That's right. Hallelujah. 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 Yesterday I said these words in front of my daughter and her boyfriend. I said, "Mama, don't got to stay home no more." And I did a dance and they thought I was nuts. But I mean, I like now we're going to get back maybe to some semblance of normalcy. Um 
but I'm also worried, right? Like, I'm worried for my kids' mental health because my both of my girls were anxious this morning. Like, they haven't been around this many people for a year. You can't take kids out of this situation and just throw them back in and expect them to, to adapt perfectly. Like, this is, it's just not good all the way around, right? But I'm not going to say, like, well, because the migrant kids are getting in-person teaching, my kids should get in-person teaching. Like, yeah, be angry about both, but these are two, these are apples and oranges, right? Like, uh, and that's why I don't, I well, I mean, struggle with this. You know, the, I mean, but again, if, if you see that it is your kid who, I mean, like, so my mom was in online education for the last decade of her teaching career, and like when everything went online, like she's just like, this is bad. Oh yeah. Right? Like it, it most is. students, like the online setting is really good for a portion of students. Yep. But most students need the brick and mortar. Like this, like our school districts are not equipped. Right. And our students aren't equipped. Like this is not going to be good. Yep. And if you are one of these parents who sees your kid who was, you know, upper upper quarter in their class is now a year behind where they were yep. at this point, you know, then, I mean, like... Of course I'm going to be upset. Like, I, I, I could see being, being pretty darn frustrated right now. Sure. And, I mean, we're always, I shouldn't say always, but more often than not, we will be, uh, we will be most attuned to the anxiety that dir- that affects us directly. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, all that to get back to the fact that, like, what we consume impacts the way we see the world and the way we understand the world. That news article was nothing but emotionally charged nonsense. It didn't contain anything surrounding the facts of the pandemic. It didn't look at the complicated mess that having kids in school during a pandemic includes. And it didn't look at the, you know, it didn't look about at the mess that results in these unaccompanied minors, right? Like there was nothing there. It was just emotionally charged dribble. And again, herein lies the problem with media is it's designed to sell advertising. So you only get 900 words or 1,400 words because the evil genius editor knows that people's attention span is only 900 words or 1,400 words or whatever. So, you know, there's only so much you can do. So you are writing the article that you want people to read and click and share and frankly, people don't care about statistics and they don't care about evidence. They care about what they feel when they're reading it. And the evil genius editors know this. So our entire you know, news media structure has been you know, yeah. devoid of virtue. I'm also not sure that this people can only you know, have an attention span for 900 words is entirely true either. I was talking about this with... Um, you mentioned my home church earlier, uh, Central Avenue, United Methodist Church in Athens, one of the best churches in the world, I believe, uh, led by my dear friend and brother in Christ, Paul. 
uh, and he and I were talking about this, right? Like, if you believe that people can only pay attention to something for 10 minutes, we didn't say this last night, but it becomes much easier to make room for advertising. Mm. People sit, he did say this, he's like, people sat and watched Lord of the Rings, like three-hour movies, right? Did they get distracted during it? Probably. But did their attention return? Absolutely. We have the capacity to concentrate as long as we're willing to put the effort in on it. It's not it easy. It also wasn't a single shot, though. It wasn't a single shot. Or a single storyline. You're right. I mean, I think this is this is where... Um, I mean, like, when we say... When we say that the movie The Last Jedi was slow, what do we mean by that? Right? It's that the storylines, one aren't getting from one to the other quickly enough and they aren't developing quickly enough which is the majority of movies made before the 90s oh they're unwatchable they're not like, unwatchable like trying they're to not watch unwatchable. like oh. like trying to watch a, a movie from before i was born it's like what year were you born 88 no no not tr no okay go ahead so you get i mean the first yeah, I mean, you get, like, Coming to America in 1988, and then pretty much everything made before that, more or less unwatchable. And by unwatchable, I mean just by our modern standards, where shots go for 1.7 seconds, and, you know, storylines switch every 47 seconds. You know, yeah, it's, it is a more taxing experience um, except people love, like, the original Star Wars, 1977, right? Like, and maybe they're, they're accepted. But you go back Citizen and you watch Kane, it. And you Casablanca. I'm looking through a list from IMDb of movies made, great movies made before the 80s. But uh, here's the thing. If you made that movie today, any of those movies today, and released them, people would be like, what a pile of unwatchable nonsense. Like, like, we love Star Wars because it's nostalgic, not because it holds up. No, it holds up fairly. The, the acting is horrible. Horrible. It's the dialogue not, is it's, horrible. It's not it's that slow. bad. It's not but that bad. But we remember bad. the way it made us feel when we were nine, so we still love it. You weren't nine. You weren't even stinking born yet don't talk to me about being nine my parents but weren't even married yet the thing is is like you know oh my gosh anyway um yeah i just you know you, you when we were doing our sound check you you shared a story about your son uh betting on himself right like some of this is our undoing and why perpetuate it like can an 18-year-old sit down and read these books that the college that my daughter wants to go to uh, read? Yes, they can, right? Like, we keep telling ourselves we don't have the attention span. We can have the – not everyone, right? Like, I believe ADHD is a thing. I have experienced ADHD stuff since 
a surgery I had that threw me into a crazy physical mess. Like these things actually are real, but I've gotten significantly better, right? Like it, it is possible. People can do this. We've lowered our expectations. We've listened to the advertisers who say these things because they can get more advertising in if we have a shorter attention span. Well, and we go to the lowest common denominator. Absolutely. Right? Like, so there is, um, I read an article a while back where they were talking to park rangers at Yellowstone, and they were talking about the difficulty in designing trash cans for Yellowstone National Park. And it's because the intelligence level, like, there is overlap between the intelligence level of the dumbest humans in the park and the smartest bears in the park. <laughs> Sorry. So, to create a trash can that every human can use, but and none of the bear bears can. can get into, is impossible. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, if, if you are, are trying to, I mean, and, and it's like, you know, we've been calling them, well, I've been calling them evil geniuses, um, but I don't think they're necessarily being evil, right? No. Like, if you are trying to make the news accessible to everyone, yeah, you've got to keep it short. That, I mean, and, that is true. And will it become uh, less intellectually virtuous in the process? Undoubtedly. Yeah. But, you know, what's... What is your, um, what's your desire? Like you have to choose one. You don't get both. Do you want greater accessibility or greater intellectual virtue? So when it comes to reading scripture, I want greater intellectual virtue. What do you want them to walk away with today? Oh, I mean, by far the most important thing is read the Bible. Mm. Right. Like whether it is the first time opening it up or you've opened it up daily for the last 50 years. Keep digging, keep going. Um, You know, we were at the, uh, you know, as part of the confirmation celebration this weekend for one of our confirmants, um, her parents got her a Bible that uh, we got to write messages in. And, you know, I on the back page. I wrote, you know, dear confirmand, you know, I'm proud of you. You've made it to the end. Now go back to the beginning. You know, it gets better each time. And I mean that, right? Like yeah. the, um, you know, we believe that the best way to discover who God is and who we are is to spend time reading the Bible. Um, so, you know, we've talked about, you know, how, uh, how difficult it can be to interpret it, but don't let that dissuade you. Don't be fearful of that. You know, read it. If there's something you don't understand or something that seems funny, you know, this is why we have a community of faith around us, right? Like right. Christianity is not a individual sport. Nope. Um, it's something we get to do together. Thanks be to God. Um, and you know, you can even send send it in as a question, and maybe we will get to it here on the second pot. Um, but yeah, I mean, big thing: 
read your Bible, open it up. You know, God can speak through the devotional reading, and um, and God can continue to speak uh, as you you know learn more and uh, grow as a disciple of Jesus. So read your Bible. That's all I got. Excellent, excellent. So you've got read your Bible. I'm going to say ask hard questions. You said it, but I'm going to reiterate. Ask the hard questions. You'll be glad. Or even, even easy questions. Right? Ask like easy just, questions, yes. Yeah, I mean, like when, you know, like no one's expected to know everything. Yep. And even the people who know a lot, you know, 30% of what they know is wrong, <laughs> right? But Which 30%? Yeah. Not sure, I but mean, yeah. But together we are, um, you know, we are discovering what it looks like to, look at, to live as faithful disciples. Um, so, you know, you got you to gotta get in the game. You got to, you know, take, take your shot. Take take the chance, open it up and see what. And you know, I, I get why people you know struggle to read the Bible. Like my biggest struggle to read the Bible is that the problem is when I open up the Bible, it demands that I change. Oh man, yeah. Right, like like it's 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 hard reading the Bible because you know the Holy Spirit has the power to use the the scriptures to convict. Um, you know, and sometimes. We don't need to know the context in order to be <laughs> convicted, right? Like, yeah, um, yeah. Oftentimes, right? Um, I mean, this is this is the the beauty of a living book. Yep. And is. a living God. Indeed. All right. Well, friends, uh, we pray that you stay caffeinated and stay in love with Jesus. This has been the second pot uh, with Caleb and Serena, and we will. Talk to you later. Take care. Put a second pot on.